All right. Well, good morning, church. So good to see all of you. And uh, listen, if you're new here, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church. And so I just want to start off here at the beginning by saying hello to you. I also want to say hello to those who are watching online, and I want to send a personal warm welcome to our East Memphis campus who is being streamed in. Can we give them a round of applause? All right, listen, this morning I am excited because we are starting a brand new four-week sermon series entitled The Gospel-Centered Marriage. And the reason why we have entitled this series The Gospel-Centered Marriage is because what we believe in light of Scripture is that every marriage, just like every life, is centered around something. Uh, So some marriages are centered around their children. Uh, Some marriages are centered around their careers. Some marriages are centered around religion or ministry or finances or retirement. The reality is every single marriage is centered around something. And usually the things that our marriages are centered around, they are good things, but they are not God things. In other words, they are things that are good, but they cannot hold the weight of your marriage. They are things that should not be at the center of your marriage. Marriage. And so, what we're going to argue today is that, and throughout this series, is that the only thing that should be at the center of your marriage is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, why the series is called The Gospel Centered Marriage. Now, what I want to do here before we make any more progress is I want to give you some definitions so that we can have the same vocabulary and terms in mind as we work our way through this series. The first thing I want to do is I want to define the word gospel. The the word gospel in light of scripture is this. It is the good news concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. So when I use gospel, that's what I'm making reference to. So now that we have a better idea of what the word gospel means, I want to give you a definition, at least my definition in light of scripture of what a gospel-centered marriage is. And here's the definition. A gospel-centered marriage is one that models the gospel, listen to this, through continual gospel meditation and gospel motivation. I'm going to read that again. A gospel-centered marriage is one that models the gospel, that's Ephesians chapter 5, through continual gospel meditation and gospel motivation. Now, I don't want you to miss the order here. And just in case you are missing it, I'm going to put it in a formula so you know exactly what I'm saying here, okay? Gospel meditation plus gospel motivation equals the gospel model. Here's the thing. A lot of times when you go through a series on marriage, pastors call you to carry out the gospel model and don't give you gospel meditation or gospel motivation. And so it ends up being up to you. It's all on you to have the type of marriage that Paul is calling us to have in Ephesians 5. But what I believe is that in light of Scripture, a true gospel-centered marriage is one that starts with gospel meditation, then the meditation moves to motivation, and then the motivation results in the model. But don't miss the part where I said it's continual meditation. Continual motivation results in you continually displaying the model. In other words, the only way you can, you can't model something if you haven't meditated on it or have been motivated by it. 
So if you forget everything else I say in this series, this is the definition that I want you to remember. That is what a gospel-centered marriage is. So this morning, we are beginning this series by essentially preaching a sermon on singleness. Now, the question that you might be asking is, why would you start a marriage series by addressing the subject of singleness? Well, I am so glad that you asked. There's actually a few reasons why we are starting with singleness. The first reason why we are starting a marriage series with the subject of singleness is because people who are bad singles end up being bad spouses. Okay? That's how it works. And and one of the mistakes that we make is we assume that, oh, now that I'm not single anymore, all my problems have been left behind, and I got a fresh start. No, no, you don't have a fresh start. And anyone who's married will tell you that marriage doesn't minimize your problems and issues. It magnifies your problems and issues. So the first reason is that. Okay? The second reason why I want to start this series on marriage with singleness is because the best time to learn about marriage is before you get into it, right? It is better to learn about marriage before you get into it instead of during it or after it's over, okay? Or as one pastor put it, the best time to learn how to fly an aircraft is when it's still on the ground, not when it's in the air or when it's landed, crash landed, okay? So that's what we see. Another reason why a series, uh, I'm starting it with singleness, is because single people, get this, tend to have an unbiblical view of marriage, and married people tend to have an unbiblical view of singleness. So there are certain singles that have a very low view, a very low view of marriage, and then there are certain singles who have a very high view of marriage. Those two extremes are not biblical. And then on the other hand, there are married people that have a very high view of singleness, and then there are married people that have a very low view of singleness. So another reason why I feel that this message is necessary is because single people don't really understand marriage, and married people don't really understand singleness. And just because you went through it doesn't mean you understood it, okay? And then the fourth and final reason why a, a message on singleness is important as we start off this series is because I would argue that adult singles are the most overlooked and undervalued group in the American church today. Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, who's this theologian, he he writes a book called God, Marriage, and Family. And if you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's very theological, but it's very well written. He has a chapter on singleness, and in that chapter, look what he says. He says, post-adolescent singles are probably the most overlooked social group in the contemporary Western church. While, lo- while larger congregations typically do have college and career ministries, some of which seem to operate, at least in part, as church-sponsored dating services, and while the topic of singleness occasionally uh, engenders a brief chapter in a book on marriage and the family witness the current example, listen to this, for the most part, Singles have been marginalized within the modern church. So those are the reasons why I want to begin this series by addressing and unpacking the subject of singleness. So this morning, my goal is twofold. On the one hand, I want to equip and encourage 
the people in the room who are single. And yet, on the other hand, I want to equip and educate the people in the room who are not single. So that by the end, we can all have a biblical theology of what singleness actually is. So, in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to be working our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. I'm not going to read it on the front end because it's a very, very long chapter. There's 40 verses there. So instead, what we're going to do is we are going to work our way through the chapter as we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to work our way through the entirety of the chapter. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at 1 Corinthians 7. I want to look at this subject of singleness under two headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the myths about singleness, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the model of singleness. So the myths about it, and then the model of it. What Paul does in this chapter is he essentially goes out of his way to uh, dispel and debunk several of the myths that we believe about singleness. And so my hope with this first point is I hope this first point will be uh, addition by subtraction. So what I mean is as I, can, as I expose the myths that many of us believe and I show you what biblical singleness is not, my hope is that the, 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 the clear picture of what biblical singleness is will become more and more obvious to you as we work through and debunk each one of these myths. So the first myth that people in general, and Christians in particular, believe, is that singleness is a condition. Singleness is a condition. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 9. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, listen to this, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what the Apostle Paul does here in these verses is he uses a very specific word to describe singleness. He says, it is good. It is good for a person to remain single in the short term and, if God calls them to, to remain single in the long term. Now, before you start amening that, here's the problem with the church. The church doesn't actually operate that way. And one of the things that really bothers me, especially as someone who has ministered to young single adults throughout my entire ministry, is that what happens usually is parents of adult adolescent singles or post-adolescent singles, they go to their Bible studies and they go to their small groups and they ask for prayer requests like if their, their, their single had a, some sort of disease or something. Oh, can you, can you please pray for, for my child? Oh, still single. I don't know what's wrong. I thought I did a good job. Seriously, you, you, you pray like they have a condition at best or a curse at worst. 
And, 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 and it's not just the parents of those people. It's, it's the friends of those people. It's all the people that are married in the church. And they say things like, what a, what a great person. Why are they still single? They just seem like a great catch. Is there something that I don't know about? Maybe a criminal past or what could it possibly be? They seem like such a great person. And so many of us, we treat singleness like it's this condition, like it's this single, this sickness that someone has that you just want them to, to get rid of. Well, the problem is, Paul says that singleness is not, not only is it not bad, it's good. And so even though we might shake our heads and say amen when we read it, we do not behave that way. We just don't. Now, here's the thing. When you as a married person don't have a proper view of singleness and in many ways don't have a proper view of married of marriage there's two ways that married people interact with single people and neither of them are helpful the first way is they try to equip them and the second way is they they envy them so let's look at both the first way that married people who have an unhealthy view of singleness in marriage uh, a response to single people is they try to equip them. And by equip them, I don't mean spiritually equip them. I mean you are romantically equipping them. And you come alongside them, and, and you're giving them uh, uh, prospects. Uh, you're giving them uh, potential candidates. You're giving them tips on, on what to wear and, 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 and how much uh, cologne or perfume to wear. Uh, you're telling them what, what Bible studies to go to. So the first way that, that married people respond to single people is that they're, they're busy equipping them, not spiritually, romantically. And, and, and really what, what happens when you behave that way is you actually start acting like, uh, 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 it's like the book of Esther. And then you're getting the single, you know, the single person's about to go into the king's room and like, hey, let me get you ready because maybe the king's going to choose you. Maybe he'll like you. Let's get you dolled up. That seems all well and good, but the problem is it's not biblical. Your job isn't to equip them, to make them a prime candidate. So this is the first thing that married people do. And these, these, this first group are the people who tend to have a high view of marriage is they try to equip. In their eyes, marriage is the ultimate thing, and so I want you to experience the ultimate thing, and so I'm going to equip you to get married. That's the first response, to equip. The second response that married people have to singles, these are the people who don't have that high of a view of marriage. They actually have a low view of marriage. Instead of equipping them, they envy them. And so they come along around singles and they say things like, oh, you're so lucky. Man, how was New Year's? It was probably a blast, wasn't it? How's that vacation? Whew, I wish. Dude, don't get married. Trust me. <laughs> See, the people in that camp tend to be in very unhealthy marriages themselves because they were unhealthy singles themselves. So they're in unhealthy marriages. And so what they do is they start to live vicariously through the single people in their life. The problem is, is that that's also unbiblical. Because the first group has too high of a view of marriage and the second group has too low of a view of marriage. What I believe in light of this passage is we are not called to equip single people and we are not called to envy single people. We are called to encourage and embrace them. 
The best thing you can do for the single person in your life is to encourage them in the season that they find themselves in. It's to embrace them. It's to come alongside them. It's to pray for them. It's to do life with them. It's to invite them over to your house and not make them feel like they are less than. That's the best thing we can do. Not equip, not envy, but encourage and embrace. Now, here's the thing. The danger with this myth, this first myth, that singleness is a condition, is that there are many singles that have bought into this lie. Growing up in church or maybe in the family you grew up in, you have bought into this lie. You, in your mind, you believe that marriage at best is a condition and at worst it's a curse. Here's the problem with that thinking. Singleness is not a condition. It is a calling. Singleness is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And what happens is when you as a single person believe this lie, here's what starts to happen. You start to assume in your head that the greatest problem you have is singleness. But the problem is when you have misdiagnosed the issue, you start looking for the wrong solution. When, when in your mind, your greatest problem is singleness, and all of a sudden, the, the greatest and ultimate solution is a spouse. But what I would argue, and what I need you to hear from me right now if you're single, your greatest problem is not your singleness, because according to this passage, singleness isn't even a problem. Your greatest problem is not your singleness, it's your sinfulness. Your brokenness is rooted not in your singleness, but in your sinfulness. And so if that's true, that your greatest problem is that you're sinful, not single, then what that means is that your ultimate solution is not a spouse, but a savior. Man, I'm already preaching. I'm still on the first point, and I'm already preaching. That's what we see. Your greatest problem it's not singleness, it's sinfulness. And so that means that your greatest solution is not a spouse, but a savior. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you are single, no matter what type of single you are, and we'll talk about the types here in a little bit, I need you to know that your singleness is not your identity. Your singleness describes you, it doesn't define you. You are not a single person who happens to be a Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be single. When you understand that and that, that idea starts to hit you, then all of a sudden, singleness goes from being a condition to being a calling. It goes from being something that you have to suffer through to something that you get to steward for the glory of God. Singleness can't define you. It can describe you. But it can't define you. The only thing that can define you is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first myth. The second myth that people believe when it comes to singleness is that singleness equals loneliness. Singleness equals loneliness. Now, here's the thing. That seems like a very logical assumption and conclusion to make. But the problem is, is that when you look at Scripture, there is nothing in Scripture that seems to indicate that. When you look at the Apostle Paul, and even more importantly, when you look at Jesus, both of those men were single people. But even though they were single, they were never alone. Even though they were single, they were never lonely. 
What you see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus surrounded himself with 12 very good friends, and out of the 12, there were three best friends. And that's not even including uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who were also his friends. And so even though Jesus was always single, he was never lonely. And even the Apostle Paul, the person who writes this chapter, you, you never see, or rarely ever, do you see the Apostle Paul traveling by himself. He's always with someone else. Just because he was single doesn't mean he was lonely. What I need you to hear from me is that if you are sitting here today and you are single and lonely, the singleness you might not have any control over, but the loneliness is your choice. Singleness and loneliness are not the same thing. They've never been the same thing. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and we're going to be looking at this chapter and this verse next week, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be single. Is that what it says there? I don't know. Maybe your translation is different from mine. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that it says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Why is that important? Because the problem wasn't that he was single. The problem was that he was alone. In other words, even though Eve happened to be his spouse, what Adam ultimately needed was not a spouse. What he needed was a friend. What he ultimately needed was not romance. What he needed was companionship. So what that tells me is that you can be single and not be alone. That's why that's so important. He says, he didn't say it is not good that man, that man should be single. It's, that it's not good that man should be alone. Listen, your singleness might not be your choice, but your loneliness is your choice. You get to choose who you are surrounded by. I believe that part of the reason why singles, and I would even argue married people, because you could be married and, and, extremely, and extremely lonely. But I would argue that part of the reason why single people are so lonely nowadays is because our culture has redefined three very important words. Intimacy, friendship, and family. The first thing that our culture has redefined, it's, it's redefined the word intimacy. In other words, what our culture has done is it's taken sex and intimacy and it's collapsed them into to one. And so in our culture, the only way you can have intimacy is in sex. That's what our culture has told us. But anyone who's been married for any period, amount of time can tell you that you can have sex without intimacy and you can have intimacy without sex. Those two things are not the same things. But when you collapse them and all of a sudden as a single you think the only way I can ever be intimate is if I have a sexual relationship with someone, now you're sitting as a single waiting for something that you already have access to right now. That's the first word that once you redefine it changes how you view loneliness. Another word that our culture has redefined is the word friend. Because of social media and things like Facebook, when we think of friends, our definition, our standard for what a friend actually is, is extremely low. 
And one of the things that I actually decided this week is that at some point in the near future, we are going to do a series on friendship because the Lord has convicted me that if there's one area in my life where I don't have a theology, a biblical theology of, is the, the biblical theology of friendship. In scripture, the definition of friendship is way deeper and way broader than many of us ever thought. You can have tons of intimacy in your friendships without ever being married. So they redefine intimacy, they redefine friendship, and you know the other word that our, our culture has redefined, and I would argue this is the church's fault just as much as the world's fault, is that your family is only your immediate family. Your father, your mother, your brother, your sister. That's it. The immediate family. The problem is, is that when you look at scripture, family had a much bigger definition. For one, scripture, when you look at family in the Old Testament, family was your uncles, your aunts, your cousins. It's your whole family, not just the immediate family. And in addition to that, not only was the, the, the actual physical family much bigger when it came to scripture, but family is also your spiritual family. So the problem is when you redefine family and your definition of family is only your mother, your father, uh, your brother, and your sister, then in your mind, if you don't have a spouse and you don't have a nuclear family, then you must not have relationships. You must be lonely. But when you understand that the definition of, of family biblically is a much bigger family physically and an even greater family spiritually, all of a sudden you realize that Singleness might be, uh, 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 singleness might be a re reality, but loneliness is an option. So that's what we see. So that's the second myth that we believe. The third myth that we believe when it comes to singleness is that singleness, get this, is only temporary. It's only temporary. Look what it says in verse 25. Paul says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. That is what I mean, brothers. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, and from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as, they, as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is what? Passing away. So what, what commentators say is that that phrase there, passing away, is in the present tense. So it's not that one day marriage will pass away. It, what Paul's saying is that it's presently passing away as we speak. That's one of the things he mentions is, is marriage. Marriage, along with everything else in your life, is passing away. So get this, and actually Jesus actually seconds this in, in Matthew 22, I believe, when Jesus talks about uh, a marriage. He says that one time, one day we're going to come to a point where in heaven we will be like the angels and people will not be given in marriage or married. 
Marriage will no longer be a thing when we get to eternity. So my wife, who is my spouse here on earth, in heaven, she's only going to be my sister. There is no marriage in heaven. So not only is this myth dangerous, that singleness is temporary, it is quite literally the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The only thing that's actually permanent is singleness. Think about that. So, so there's two reasons why we should not believe the lie that singleness is temporary. There's a short-term reason, and then there's a long-term reason. The short-term reason is this. One of the things that parents do, and this can be parents or it can be family members or it can be friends, one of the mistakes that we make, but I'm going to speak to parents here for a second, when we tell our children, whether they are 6, 16, or 26, hey, I can't wait for the spouse God's going to give you, if you just keep doing the right thing, if you just keep checking all the boxes, if you just keep being a good elder brother, one day, God is going to give you a spouse. The problem with that is that in the short term, you don't actually know that. What if God in his plan has your son or daughter to never be married ever? How unhelpful is it when you tell them, hey, God has a spouse for you? There's two things that you end up doing. One, you end up giving them a conditional view of God. Hey, God, I did my part. Now I'm 36 and I still don't have a spouse. Why did you let me down? And if you're not careful, what you can do when you make marriage the end-all, be-all of a, of, a, of a child, and when you grow up, this is the end-all, be-all, you can actually end up making marriage an idol. So what I mean is this. If your children, let's talk about adult children for a second, if the only reason they're following God is so that one day God gives them a spouse, then what, they mean, what that means is what they're worshiping is not God, is the spouse. God has become a means to an end. God, I, I followed you. Where's my spouse? I checked my boxes off. Why aren't you checking off your boxes? And so when we as parents or as family members or as friends come alongside someone and promise them something that God does not promise, we are setting them up for failure. And if, if we're not careful, we can set them up to use God in order to get marriage or to get a spouse. And God becomes secondary instead of primary in their life. So, so the first reason why that's a lie is because of the short-term reality. But like I already mentioned, the second reason is because of the long-term reality. Both Paul and Jesus say that one day marriage will be done. And, and uh, Andreas Kostenberger, the guy that I quoted earlier in his book, he says that when you look at the narrative arc of Scripture, Scripture becomes more and more pro-singleness pro as it goes. And so in the creation story, singleness is non-existent. Then in the Old Testament, singleness is uncommon. Then, in the New Testament, singleness becomes advantageous. And by the time we get to Revelation, singleness becomes universal. So the, the, the narrative arc of Scripture is pro-singleness. We will all be single at the end of time. And so the idea that singleness is temporary seems great on the surface until you look at it through the lens of Scripture. The next myth that people believe when it comes to singleness, this is a big one, they believe that singleness is inferior to marriage. Singleness 
is inferior to marriage. Look what Paul writes, verse 38. It says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do, what does it say there? Even better. I say that again. Even better. The person who refrains from marriage will do even better. Then verse 32 says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. He goes on. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote, listen to this, good order, and to secure, he's talking to single people, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So, so, so the lie that we believe, that singleness is inferior to marriage, again, that sounds great when you look at marriage through the lens of focus on the family and James Dobson. The problem is that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that singleness is not even equal to marriage. If done correctly, it's even better. So there, there are two reasons why singleness is not inferior to marriage. The first reason is potentially, and the second reason is positionally. Let me, let me explain each. The, the first reason why singleness is not inferior to marriage is because of what singleness can potentially be. So, so don't miss this. The reason why the Apostle Paul says that uh, singleness is better or superior to marriage is not necessarily because it's, it is inherently better, but because it can be potentially better. Don't miss that. So if you're sitting here today and you're single, that doesn't necessarily mean that you automatically have more value or worth than someone who's married. He says that it can potentially be better if you spend your singleness pleasing the Lord with undivided devotion to him. So get this. If your singleness is primarily marked by Netflix binges, waking up at noon, exotic vacations, online video gaming, and porn addiction, this is not the type of single life that Paul says is better. In other words, your singleness can potentially be better, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. It's all about what you are doing. Are you seeing it as something that you suffer through, or are you seeing it as something that you steward? Is it a condition, or is it a calling? That decision will determine whether it's better than marriage or not. So the first reason why singleness is not inferior to marriage is because of what singleness can potentially be. But the second reason why singleness is not inferior to marriage is because of what singleness in Christ is positionally. Here's what I mean by positionally. One of the things that you may not know is that in these days where Paul is writing, in these days, marriage, a singleness was a very uncommon thing. As a matter of fact, the only adults that were single in Paul's day were prostitutes and eunuchs. That's it. The only people that were adult singles 
were prostitutes and eunuchs. Why? Because in those days, that, that culture is very different from our culture. We live in a Western individualistic culture where you kind of can make, if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you can make your own name and you can make your own legacy. You can make your own uh, empire, right? Back then, in a traditional culture, the unit, the family was more important than the individual. And so if you were not married, then you wouldn't have a name. You wouldn't have an identity. You wouldn't have a legacy. You wouldn't have an inheritance. So marriage was very important back then, to the point where Caesar Augustus got to a place that if a widow was single longer than two years, you would, she would literally start being taxed to get married again. Until she got married again, she would get taxed. Because in those days, singleness was that inferior. So for the Apostle Paul to show up and say, not only is singleness not inferior, it's superior, it would have blown people's minds. It's essentially blowing our minds a little bit, but in those days, it would have been a way more significant statement that Paul was making. The question is, why is Christianity, especially in those days, why was it the only viable option for adult singles? Well, there's two reasons. One is because all throughout Scripture, we are commanded to take care of widows, so back then, widows had to fend for themselves, but in light of Scripture, we are to provide for widows. That's what the Bible talks about. But here's the other reason why. Because remember, the reason why people had to be in a family is because your family gave you your identity, it gave you your inheritance, it gave you a legacy, it gave you all those things. But what's beautiful about the gospel is that when you place your faith in Jesus, you are given a better name. You are given a greater family. You are given a greater inheritance. You are given a greater legacy. So the reason why single people now all of a sudden had the option to be single for the entirety of their lives is because in the gospel, they found totally and completely what could only be provided partially in a real physical family in marriage. So let's go to the next myth. The next myth that people believe when it comes to singleness is that, it is, is that singleness is way worse than settling. In other words, it's better to settle than to remain single. Look what Paul says in verse 39. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. And I want us to say this part together. Ready? Only in the Lord. Let's go ahead and say that again. Only in the Lord. Then he says, go to the next. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That's how Paul finishes the chapter. But I don't want you to miss that. Paul says that whether you're getting remarried or married for the first time, you should marry only in the Lord. Okay? So, 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 so let, me, let me kind of unpack this for you a little bit. One of the things that happens when you have been single for a long time Right? It's, there's one thing to be single when you're 18, 19, 20. It's a whole other thing to be single when you're 25, 30, 35, 40. The longer you are single, the more you will be tempted to lower your standards. Because the longer you are single, the more people give you that side eye when you walk in. The more people come alongside you to give you dating advice. And, and over the years, 
every wedding invite and every baby announcement feels like salt in a wound. And if you're not careful, it can lead to uh, anger. It can lead to sadness. It can lead to depression. It can lead to discouragement. And so the longer you're single, the more likely you are and the more tempted you are to lower your standards. Paul says that you should no longer, should ever, ever consider lowering your standards when it comes to marrying a Christian or not. By, by making that phrase only of the Lord, for those of you who know 1 Corinthians chapter, just the book of 1 Corinthians, right before this, in the previous chapter, Paul talks about being unequally yoked. That a Christian should not be unequally yoked. In other words, what he's saying there is that you as a Christian should never, under any circumstances, marry a non-Christian. So if you can't marry them, you probably shouldn't date them either. Because usually dating leads to marriage. I don't know if you knew that. But anyways, do not be unequally yoked. Now, what I appreciate about that example, for those of you who don't know, now, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't start going to church until I was 18. And so when I first heard, do not be unequally yoked, I thought it was talking about egg yolk, like eggs. And I'm like, well, how do you get two eggs together? I was really, I thought it was egg yolk. Anyways, I have problems. But what, here's what he means. A, a yoke is this wooden beam that goes over two animals. It, it's harnessed around two animals. And then it's tied to some sort of cart, and it pulls the cart along. But the only way a yoke works is if you have two animals that are of the same kind. And not just two animals of the same kind, but two animals that are similar heights. So you have two oxen or two horses or two donkeys, right? So to be unequally yoked, here's what essentially what it means. It would be, just to, just to give you a visual picture, it would be like having an oxen and a donkey and putting a yoke on them. It's not going to work because the animals, not only are they different speed, not only are they different types of animals, but they're different sizes. They move at different paces. They have different strides. The problem with that is that when you do that, you either end up, you actually not either, you end up crushing the bigger animal because the bigger animal is carrying the majority of the weight. And you actually make no progress then, because if the bigger animal is pushing, then you essentially just go in circles, if you move at all. That's the danger of an unequal yoke. When you marry a non-Christian, you then end up carrying the weight of the relationship. You're not, you don't have someone who's going to do life with you. And listen, I don't know if you know this, but uh, doing, being married to a Christian with the Holy Spirit is already hard enough. When you decide to do that with someone who is not a believer, it makes things exponentially harder. So the way I would describe it is if I had a chair up here and, and, and I'm the person who's a believer and I'm dating someone who I want to bring up to my level, if I'm pulling them up and they're pulling me down, I am much more likely to fall than they are to be brought up. Because think about it, for them to come up, it requires saving faith. Only God can do that. For me to fall down, it requires a sinful flesh. I can do that all the time. And that's the danger. And so if you're sitting here today and you're considering dating someone who's not a Christian, or you're already dating someone who's not a Christian, or you're already engaged with someone who's not a Christian, what I would love to do is to sit you down with people who have made that decision and have them tell you what being married to a non-Christian is like. In one of her articles, Kathy Keller, uh, she says that there's only three ways that a marriage like that can end. 
or can go. The first way that, that, a, that an unequally yoked marriage can go is uh, Jesus gets marginalized in the marriage, and all of a sudden you stop doing things like devotionals and fellowshipping and tithing and raising your children of the Lord in order to respect the spouse. That's the first thing that can happen. Jesus gets marginalized. The second option is the spouse get, gets marginalized. You keep doing all the things you've always been doing, and they're on the outside looking in. And then she says, as a result, the third thing that happens is you get to a place where essentially the, either the, believing, the unbelieving spouse walks away because they have been neglected and overlooked, or you both find this really awkward, messy, lonely middle ground, and neither of you are ever satisfied with the marriage. So that's that one. And the final myth is this. All singleness is created equal. All singleness is created equal. In verse 8, look what Paul says. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, here's the thing. In this, category, in this verse, he brings up the unmarried and the widows. Those are two different categories already. And then in another place, he talks about there's other, not only are there different types, an unmarried person, in, in light of this passage, is someone who was divorced, which divorce was very common in Paul's day. The, the widow, obviously, is someone who's lost a spouse. And then in another place, he talks about the virgin. The virgin is the person who's never been married. So that's three categories right there. Someone who's never been married, someone who's been divorced, and someone who's lost their spouse. So you can see there's different layers to singleness. And then at one point, Paul talks about those people who are called to singleness and those people who are not called to singleness. So what does that teach us? What that teaches us is that not all singleness is created equal. And one of the worst things we can do as Christians is treat all single people like they are the same. That's not love. That's laziness. And there's three ways that you can determine where someone is in their single life. The first way is by figuring out how they got there. If the person is single because they've never been married, that's very different than if the person is single because they got divorced. And it's very different than if the person is single because they got widowed. See, that's one way. So the first way you can figure out the differences is how they got to that singleness. Another way you can figure out the differences between single people is by not only figuring out how they got there, but by figuring out what their approach is to singleness. Are they someone who is called to lifelong singleness? Or are they someone who is looking for a spouse? You are going to interact with them different once you find out what their approach to singleness is. And then the last thing that differentiates single people is the life stage that they're in. In other words, a 20-year-old single is very different from a 40-year-old single and is very different from a 60-year-old single. A 20-year-old single is worried about how they're going to pay off their college debt. A 40-year-old single is trying to figure out how they're going to pay off their kids' college debt. And a 60-year-old single is concerned about their grandkids' college debt or their retirement. And so it's not fair for you to approach singles and treat them exactly the same. Not all singleness is created equal, and the best thing we can do is treat people accordingly based on where they are in their single life. So those are the myths about singleness, and my hope is that by subtraction, we have had addition. Now that you know what it's not, hopefully you have a, a better clarity of what biblical singleness is. So now that we looked at the myths, I, I want to conclude this morning by looking at the model of singleness. Now, here's the thing. 
you would think that the model of singleness is the Apostle Paul, especially since he's the one that writes this letter. But even though the Apostle Paul is a wonderful example of singleness, at the end of the day, the Apostle Paul is a sinner just like us. And at the end of the day, he, he could only partially live up to the standards that he is setting here in this passage. And so if the Apostle Paul is not the ultimate model for singleness, then the question is, who could the ultimate model for singleness be? The answer to that question is Jesus Christ is the ultimate model of singleness. But here's the thing. If all I do is give Jesus as a model, then really I'm not helping you much. Here's why. Because if I give Paul as a model, then that's man-centered preaching. Remember three weeks, two weeks ago? If I give Paul as a model, that's just man-centered preaching. And if all I do is give Christ as a model, that's, that's Christ-centered preaching. The problem with both sets of preaching is that it's still up to you to live up to that standard and, and mimic and display that model. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to be the model of singleness. He also came to give you the motive for singleness. Here's why. In the passage, the Apostle Paul says that the purpose of singleness, don't miss this, is to please the Lord and to be undivided uh, in our devotion to him. The word there, pleased, means to have someone's full approval. Okay? And then the word there, undivided devotion, devotion there means to be set apart and holy. See, the problem is when you look at the actual definition of what those words mean, what you discover pretty quickly is that we are terrible at both of those. Even on our best day, we don't fully please the Lord. Even on our best day, we are not undividedly devoted to the Lord. And so if that's the case, what hope do we have? Well, the beautiful thing is that even though this passage is not ultimately about us, even though this passage is not ultimately about Paul, there was a person who did singleness the right way. There was an individual who stewarded his singleness from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. And throughout the entirety of his singleness, he pleased the Lord and he gave himself an undivided devotion to God. And that person was Jesus Christ. So here's what this means. Still really haven't given you hope yet if you think about it because he's still just an example. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that Jesus did not remain single. He was single during his earthly life, but Jesus Christ did not remain single. What the Bible tells us is that Jesus came down in order to pursue, in order to unite himself to a group, in order to be a bridegroom and make a group of people their spouse. But here's what's beautiful about that idea. Martin Luther, the, the German one, not the black one, uh, Martin Luther had a, had a book called On Christian Liberty. And in that book, uh, the, Martin Luther has this example, this analogy of the gospel that just really encouraged me, and I hope it encourages you. Martin Luther, in that book, uh, what he says is that people, when, when, when a couple gets married, talks about a couple getting married, right? When a man and a wife get married, they go from being two to being one. So here's what happens. Each spouse brings their background, their sin, their past, and their baggage. And everything that's the wives becomes the husbands, and everything that's the husbands becomes the wives. Luther says that in the gospel, that's exactly what happens when we become Jesus' spouse. Jesus, the bridegroom, everything that we have becomes his, but here's the great news. When we are united to him, everything that's his becomes ours. So his perfect moral record, his perfect obedience, his perfect singleness, his perfect reverence and devotion to the Lord, now when we are united to him, have become ours. 
At the cross, Jesus lost his intimacy so that we might have intimacy. At the cross, Jesus lost his family so that we might have a family. At the cross, Jesus lost his inheritance so that we might have an inheritance. At the cross, Jesus lost everything so that we might have everything. Jesus isn't just the model of singleness. He now becomes the motive for singleness. Man, guys, that is amazing news. And it changes everything if you understand it. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well goes to the well. And the reason why she shows up at noon, get this, is because she knew that people were going to judge her. She was a woman who had been married multiple times, and the person who she was with was not her husband. So Jesus meets her there. He starts to speak to her, which already was giving her value and worth because he was a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. But when he is speaking to her, Jesus goes from water to relationships. And you're like, what, what's up with this? Why would Jesus go from that to that? Jesus goes from actual water to living water. Well, Jesus goes there because Jesus understood, get this, that what she ultimately wanted, what she ultimately needed was living water. And that living water wasn't found in a man. It was found in him. He knew that what she was looking for, she was looking for acceptance. She was looking for approval. She was looking for significance. She was looking for security. She was looking for value horizontally instead of of, of vertically. So Jesus, by saying what he says to this woman, don't miss this, what he was saying to her is that your greatest problem is not your singleness, it's your sinfulness. And since your greatest problem is your singleness, not your sinfulness, what you need is not a spouse, but a savior. Come on, church. That's what Jesus says to her. And so here's what I need you to know. Ready? I need you to know that if you're sitting here today and you are a single person, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what the church says, in Christ, you are not second class. In Christ, you are not second rate. In Christ, you are not forgotten. In Christ, you are not substandard. In Christ, you are not less than. In Christ, you are not broken. And if God sees you the way he sees Jesus, then what that means is this, and this is amazing news. When God sees you, that means that now in Christ, you are fully loved, and you are fully accepted, and you are fully valued, and you are fully adopted. And you are fully grafted in. And you are fully united to him. That's what that means. Listen, I need you to know. I need you to understand that your calling might change, but your identity doesn't change. Your season might change, but your identity doesn't change. Your relationship status might change, but your identity never changes. Why? Because your singleness doesn't define you. Your Savior does. Your relationships don't define you. Your Redeemer does. It's not what you think about yourself that defines you. It's what he says about you that defines you. See, what we see is that if marriage gives us the shape of the gospel, then singleness points us to the sufficiency of the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is sufficient for your singleness. Jesus is sufficient for your brokenness. Jesus is sufficient for your sinfulness. 
Jesus is sufficient for your aloneness. And get this, single people, please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. If Jesus Christ isn't sufficient when you are, when you are single, he's not going to be sufficient when you are dating. And he's not going to be sufficient when you're engaged. And he's not going to be sufficient when you're married. And he's not going to be sufficient when you're a parent. And he's not going to be sufficient when you're a grandparent. If he is not sufficient now, he will not be sufficient then. A human spouse can complement you, but they will never complete you. A spiritual spouse will complete you and complement you. In Jesus, you have been given a greater name, a greater family, a greater identity, a greater inheritance, and a greater significance. So praise be to God that in Jesus, we have not just the model for singleness, We have the motive. And praise be to God that Jesus doesn't just compliment us, he completes us. Praise be to God that even though you might never get what you want, in the gospel you will always have what you need. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy and your love and your grace. And God, I want to pray for the single people here today, the people who feel overlooked, the people who feel like they're not seen, the people who feel like they are less than. I pray that today they would understand that the ultimate single person was Jesus and that because of his singleness and because of his single-minded devotion to God, they might never have what they want, but in Christ, they will always have what they need. Thank you, Jesus, that in the gospel, single people have an inheritance, they have a family, they have value, they have significance, and they are seen. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen. Amen.